Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. This series is sponsored by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Piecework, and Handwoven magazines. Find us online and subscribe at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Ann Marrow. I'm here with Charlotte Kwan, who is the founder of Maywa. Welcome. Thank you. When I think about what I have an idea in my mind of what Mewa is, but the more I've looked into it, the more I realize that there are a lot more parts to it than I knew initially. So, can you tell me exactly what this what this project entails? Yeah, it's it's a little complicated. Uh, it's quite diverse, and that's because it's grown over the years. So, here in Vancouver, we have uh, we have two retail stores in a really wonderful arts-based area right in the center of our city called Granville Island. It's not an island as such. It's right in the center of the city where our art colleges are and great theater and great tons of uh, independent artists. So, we've been here almost since the beginning. And we have two retail stores, and then above our retail stores, we have our offices, and we also have um, a teaching studio and our permanent archive of of books and and textiles. So it's our permanent collection that is open to the public. So then in addition to that, we have our main studio, which is in the east part of the city. Uh, It's its own building. Um, and we have, uh, we have our own studio. We also teach out of it. So we have the Maywa School of Textiles. Uh, and we, it's also our warehouse and our online. And, uh, and it's also open in general times. This is all open to the public. So it, that's also open to the public. And um, it's also a gallery space that we can hold exhibitions or pop-ups or that kind of thing. So so that brings the so that's our bricks and mortar, and that's our uh, our online and our um, school, which is called the MST, the Mayo School of Textiles. So that's been going since two thousand and four. In addition to that, we have we do a tremendous amount of research, and we're quite involved in that side of natural dyes as well as we do our own production. Um, so there's that aspect of the so-called operations, our company. So then we have this whole other side of our of who we are, which is India. And um, that came out of my, I mean, I've worked in India now for over 30 years and we work, and the reason our company exists is because of, because of working with artisans. So I was an artisan myself. And then that, all that creative energy went into the whole idea of turning Mewa into a, one of the pillars or one of the, one of the anchors of artisans from here and from India, is which was which is where my passion is, uh, to find markets. And when I uh, went to India 32 years ago um, and started working with the artisans, that was a huge issue. Uh, it was uh, with artisans. It just it just stunned me that here I got to choose, had the luxury of choosing to be an artist. And here I was meeting artists in India and craftspeople in India who were generation upon generation of um, of skill development, art development, weaving development, all of that crafts. And my interest is crafts and textiles. Um, so that uh, it stunned me, and I came back, and I was. Um, we have to reapply to be where we are in Granville Island in our businesses and so forth. It's not a given ever. 
and I went to the administration and I said I knew I had to be an artist, but I convinced them that they should let me try to represent other crafts, uh, other uh, textile crafts people, um, particularly from India. Uh, and that would um, be such a wonderful um, exchange of ideas between all that was Granville Island and all who Mewa was and all who these artisans are. So that started, I worked with embroiderers first and then block printers and then natural dyers and weavers. And... Uh, several different types of block printers, many types of embroiderers now, and but our whole underpinning is natural dyes. So I happen to work in the printing industry. That was my background as a, as a I got my journeyman's ticket in running a four-color um, press and one thing after another, I got lead poisoning. So in Canada, that, that means you can never work in the industry again. Uh, and so although I had spent four years um, going through the process of getting the ticket, uh, I couldn't stay in that. It made me realize how interested in color I was. And then, of course, I got interested in the toxicity of color. So that made me interested in dyes and natural dyes and plant-based dyes. And then I got interested in the farming of that. And that took me to India, along with the interest in textiles. And really, I thought I would just go and get out. <laughs> and then I fell in love with India. It was amazing. That country just was, is, it continues to, uh, my mother, my mother, bless her, uh, was, uh, I was a hyperactive child. So I can, as a mother myself, I can just imagine how that played out in her life. And uh, she, when she came to India at 80 something, 86 with me for the first time, she's still with us and she's 96 now. Uh, she said, oh, I understand <laughs> Uh, why you fell in love with India? It's the first place I've, first thing I've ever seen that uses up all your energy and exhausts you. <laughs> so I was pretty. Uh, I thought that was quite funny, actually. So maybe that was why. But India is the mecca of color. I mean, it's just. I'm. I. You know. I. I am so drawn to their their color of the land, the color of the people, the color that grows there, the knowledge of the knowledge of natural dyes. There is. It's. It's just so deep. Uh, it's interesting that, you know, natural dyes and toxicity took you to India because it's not particularly known for as a place that is very careful about um, chemical pollution in a lot of oh cases. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I can't believe I'm still alive, actually. I mean, it's, it's terribly polluted. And they don't and there's a there's too little care there for there's so many people and there's so many issues. There'll be more issues, I'm sure now, uh, but um, but when you get out to the villages, that's the India I know. I, I don't exist in the cities, um, of course. This I have to interact with cities, but um, when you get out to the farms and when you get out to the to the knowledge and the um, in the most unexpected with the most unexpected people and in the most unexpected ways, and even they surprise themselves. You know, when they're when somebody's interested how much actual knowledge they have. And then it all comes out, you know, then they, oh, my, my grandmother used to, you know, mix this type of resist and this is what she used and this is how she extracted her dyes. And it's, it's, um, it's all there. It's, it's, it's in, in fear of disappearing from their own, um, uh, from their own uh, knowledge base, uh, just because there's more interesting things, I think in India for young people, but, um, I hope it doesn't disappear before they actually reclaim that. I hope that natural dyes makes a, enough of a comeback globally that the people who have kept it alive and kept it viable for all of us 
to, you know, buy a piece or do a leaf print or do an indigo vat to do and move on. I hope that before that all, um, that trend, the, before that trend, I hope it's not a trend not this time around. And I hope that natural dyes um, become something that uh, benefits economically and environmentally and within with people people's workspaces and so forth can can benefit the very people that all the knowledge sits with yeah yeah and i don't know maybe this whole coronavirus crazy time that we're in it romantically i like to think that gosh you know in places i know so well in india where all the day laborers have gone back in a I have to say, it wasn't well planned, but still, they're back now in their in their villages. All the people we know um, ha- that work in villages know that all the day laborers from all these surrounding cities they're back now in the villages, and they're all they're all talking. You know, like why do we do we leave these villages? It's so it's such a lifestyle to be back with family. Economically, the future is bleak, but maybe not. I don't know. Maybe it's something will happen. I know we're certainly, you know, trying to find ways that we could diversify the work and, you know, try talking to some of the villages. They say, well, let's try our own sericulture. Let's try growing some of these dyes ourselves. Why are the why is it going to the big farms? And and uh, we're like maybe. Maybe this is a time. I don't know. I hate to say, could be awful in the meantime. <laughs> so, how have things changed since in the last thirty years? I would imagine, you know, when I think about the the political transformations and the environmental transformations, but in what you have seen, you know, first of all, as a, as a business owner in North America, but also with someone with relationships in India, um, what have you seen change over that time? It's funny because some things have trained, changed so dramatically and some things haven't changed at all. And it makes me think it was probably this way <laughs> in 1820. <laughs> so, um, I mean, the cities have changed dramatically. And, of course, the roads and the um, – India was India's always suffered with pollution. I mean, part of that uh, is their farming methods. Part of it is their, is the is the monsoon cycle. Uh, and trapping pollution and part of it of course is is how many more cars a day they put on the road i don't know the figure anymore but it's unbelievable so um and that dependence on that but um but i feel i don't know i feel more hopeful uh for india than when i arrived and i i don't think that has anything to do with us it's just the I feel the um, resilience of um, of the village village villages finding uh, an economy that works in the village. So all the people we work are weavers, uh, dyers, and so forth. So our business is so it's still small. It's medium to small to medium. We've never, I've never believed in, neither do I ever want to get to that size. It's easy to get to the size that you have to move everybody into Delhi or outskirts of Mumbai and open factories and get everything um, conforming to a certain method of whether it's drying and powdering of dyes or making of um, lines of clothing or bedding, which are what we're involved in. So it's always been a 
vision and a promise to the artisans and a vision of ours and theirs that we don't move it, move it, our our um, facilities to out out of the village. We work within the village, which has meant that we have to change everything how we produce. We nobody will cut our fabrics for us in an in a in a cutting factory. Nobody because all our weaving is different <laughs> different widths, and it all if salvages are difficult, it's hard to lay the fabric. And so we've had to open up our own stitching sent a stitching um, place in one of the villages that we hand cut everything. We hand wash everything. We hand cut everything. We sew on, 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 on um, powered machines. We're not treadle, but uh, we did have to change everything to be the business that we are. And, um, and that is uh, interestingly still incredibly connected to the village and in the village. I mean, we're literally in the village and it works. I mean, we're happier and they're happier. And now, my kids and I have 40 staff here. They go back and forth to India and they work and they, it's a, it's a perk to them. They just absolutely love existing in the village. It's they're young in their thirties, all of them pretty much. And it, to them, it's a huge adventure. Is Maywa the primary market for these artisans or do they also have other relationships with other purchasers? No, they have other relationships with something we really want. <laughs> uh, we don't want to be that, have that burden of being the only one. And we are very open with our patterns, our designs, our colors, our recipes. Yeah, yeah, you know, we've developed them together. They're half yours, half ours. So if you have somebody you think is not going to be a competitor to us, don't kill our business, but somebody's in Australia or somebody's in Japan or whatever, share it. It's fine. It belongs to all of us, both of us. Um, So that happens. Um, There has been some very interesting things happen, really, uh, because we were the main Mm, uh, we, we placed the largest orders, let's say, for our fabrics, for our clothing and our fabric and our bedding, finished bedding. And then we started teaching sewing in, this, in the villages so they could do all the finishing and so forth. And then there was some big companies in India, the natural, the, um, the craft textiles and handmade textiles started to really um, come up in India. And we were super happy about that. It, we started first seeing them show up in Bollywood movies, in sets and stuff, and people were coming in and buying it. Then all of a sudden, the, the, the middle class of India, Indian women particularly, started to oh, this is, this, is, this is okay. Before it was, oh, you know, we just have um, a kadi sari or maybe some, some kadi in their home, no natural dyes, they're too dull. And, uh, and, you know, just one or two Gandhian parts of, their, of, of what they would purchase. Otherwise, they, you know, they were, they were in, more interested in becoming middle class and having a little bit more, um, I guess, a Western outlook. You know, there was there was a time I have a I have a flat there. There was a time I wanted to invite all the women over from the village and uh, or yeah, from the village from Bagru and um and you know I have old furniture in there and I have worn textiles and all the things that I love and they're like, oh, your flat is so nice. It'll be so nice when you get new stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I said, this is my new stuff. Thank you very much. <laughs> I love it. Oh, okay, whatever. Uh, all your stuff is so. Faded looking, 
So um, in that sense, the uh, market started happening for, um, for artisans and artisans and villages. And it was wonderful to see. We benefited from it because new designers were coming in and, and they were getting the, they were challenging and we've always been challenging. And, and then the, then the problem started, you know, pricing always becomes an issue. So then all of a sudden we started noticing, well, that looks very much like matter, but it doesn't look like matter anymore, indigo. And mm-hmm. what's going on? Oh, they want us to do that, or um, uh, natural dyeing or whatever, but to look like the, um, here, to look like the uh, natural dyes. And I go, well, yeah, I don't mind sharing my stuff, but. A, you can't change your costing, and B, you can't, you just can't try to sell synthetic dyes for natural dyes. So that became quite a big problem for us. And in fact, in some relationships, we ended them. One was very sad for me because I I was just so, I loved, it was my favorite village to go to in India, and I I loved the people so much. But it got out of hand. I mean, our stuff was coming. I had to test everything, and it was coming not naturally dyed. And interestingly, in the last couple of years, that relationship, they've come back to me. And they've said, please, we've had, we've had, you know, people pass away in our village, young people, and they're the dyers. And we're suspecting this problem. And I can't speak to that. I don't have that chemistry background, but I also suspect it. So now, but now when they come back, it's a different, it's not ma'am coming from the West, giving them an order, giving value added, paying for natural dyes, and then doing natural dyes. And then trying to find other natural dyes, dyeing not other not other clients within India that want to pay the price of natural dyes. It's like more expensive. So, but now they're coming back for a very different reason. It's way more powerful, way, way, way more powerful. They're coming back saying we don't want to do synthetic dyeing anymore. It's killing us. It's ruining our water. And we had it used to have a very beautiful village. I said, no, I know you had a very beautiful village right on the Ganges, and you poisoned it yeah. with. Um, sodium hydrosulfide with um with bleaching methods with naphthal dyes with um all of these things so yeah no now it's now what's happening is deeper it's much deeper you know um the the term fair trade started coming up a lot you know maybe 20 years ago and i noticed that although you know, with what you're talking about, it sounds like what a lot of people think of as fair trade. That's not a term that I see you use. Yeah, we're fair trade certified all over the place. I don't use it uh, because I think that we had to, I was shocked at how easy it was for us to get fair trade certification. I thought, I think fair trade should go way further if you're going to be fair trade. So I don't think you should, I don't think it's fair to the customer to put on that sticker of fair trade and let them think that this is I, it's a step for sure it's a step but it doesn't go far enough and i was stunned at what i did not have to produce <laughs> as for for to get my fair trade certification so i feel we go way beyond fair trade and i find fair trade was stopping the questions mm. because people were saying people were saying oh they're fair certified boom we'll buy from them instead they challenge us and ask us oh and i say yeah we're fair trade but Ask, you know, challenge us constantly. If you have an idea that you think we're using too much plastic or you think we travel too much, I don't know. Let's talk about it. You're our customers. You, you are, you guide us. In the end, it's your dollar. 
all we can do. You're the gatekeeper. But you got to be questioning as a gatekeeper. You can't just let advertising tell you what it's all about. You need to be involved in every single aspect of your buying dollar. Otherwise, don't spend it. So that actually brings me to something. Um, your, your, uh, was it your 30th anniversary book, uh, put together a book called A Quiet Manifesto Revisited. Yeah. Mm. Um, and what, what is A Quiet Manifesto to you? Well, The Quiet Manifesto was a little tiny book. You'll see it in one of the photos. It's a green little book. And it was a book I produced way, way back. I wrote trying to understand what was my role working in India in these villages. Did I even belong working in India? How would we work in India? What was the vision of the company? And it came very much from many conversations with artisans, with, with the people we worked with in villages. And gradually I found I was on some a kind of a route that was going to lead me rather than me directing that route me saying oh this is how this is the way we should trade as westerners in another in another culture this is how two cultures should trade with each other this is how this instead i found the actual journey or the story or the curiosity was leading and that became the quiet this little book called the quiet manifesto and to help our customers understand that they were part of that they were as much a part of working in the village as we were. And they and that we hoped that through collaborating directly with artisans and directly with craftspeople, we could keep craft where it belongs. Craft is in an odd situation because it's it's economic. It's not fine art. Uh, it can easily, sometimes easily be copied. It could be mass-produced. Um, it can sometimes look like mass produced, even if it's like pottery in a village or pottery, but, but always it should have something that when somebody picks it up, I feel somebody picks it up, there should be this curiosity. It should be so beautiful and, but so interesting and so def def definitively belong to a, another culture that we should be able to, it should draw us to that culture. Maybe not physically, but Maybe to say, oh my God, this pot with this firing on this side, and it's this amazing Miti terracotta, and it's got that black firing. How did they do it? It's polished so beautifully. How did they do that? And, you know, in, in uh, Megalea or wherever that pot or that textile, you know, you feel it and you can feel who, how did they do Who did this? This is definitely belongs to a culture and craft has always been traded with that it's only more in the industrial time that we've been able to take a certain other craft and manufacture it in china or something and have guatemalan textiles show up in you know skinny jean whatever company so um yeah that quiet manifesto was that journey and it it really helped me and also defined it for the staff and for the artisans and for who we traded with in India when they asked, why don't you go through a dealer? Why don't you just go to a showroom? Or why don't you, why don't you let us look after everything for you and we can get people doing it? It made us say, oh, no, that's not part of our manifesto. No, no, we need to trade directly. And we need to see what our influence is and we need to see if we even belong there. And we need to see if, if coming in would be beneficial or we should never even come in at all or we should never leave, or all these types of ways that we started to understand how we needed to trade. Uh, and so then when we had our, we, when we were thinking around, oh, you know, what are we going to do for our 25th anniversary? And we da, 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 da. And then as we started to come up with an idea, we realized, well, we've missed it. I, it's, we're already 28. 
<laughs> then we're like, oh, shoot. So then, um, then we thought, well, our 30th. And it was one of our staff, actually, she works um, in, in graphics uh, with, for us. And, um, and she said, you know, because I thought, well, we can tell all the stories of all the craftspeople. And she goes, you know, you're always telling all the stories of all the craftspeople, but nobody knows your story. Nobody knows Maywa's story. So that was became Revisiting the Quiet Manifesto. And it has all these stories about where that Quiet Manifesto is now, what we believe in now. Very sim- It's very similar to the beginning, but how did we do all that? How did, I mean, the Quiet Manifesto came when my kids were born. Now my kids are 33 and 35, and I'm a grandma. Uh, how did, why did they come in? You know, so there so was that little interview with them and, um, and, and Ishmael Bai, who is one of my mentors, you know, I took photos of him before I even know, knew him just because I was taking photos of, of the Rabari on the, on their migration. And, you know, so there's so many parts of that. Well, how do we believe in natural guys? Why do we believe in it? Why do we, um, what, what is our idea of what craft is? Uh, sometimes, um, you know, I'm, I'm quite proudly a middle, middle man. I don't even need to be called a middle woman. And I don't think all middle men have to be, uh, it has to be a negative connotation. Trade has to happen, but middle men can be good. Middle men can be super bad and awful. It's so interesting to hear you say that because it, it touches on something I was curious about. This is a, you're, this is a time when I think a lot of people who are, you know, appreciating and wanting to learn more about textile traditions that we didn't grow up in have a certain ambivalence about, you know, do I deserve to be there? What is my role? Can I, can I use any of these techniques? Um, you know, how, how can I be respectful and, and also feel part of this community. And so that some of what you're saying, it sounds as though that's a question that, that's come up for you before. Always. I don't belong. But doesn't mean I don't belong. You know, it doesn't mean I can't be, have a relationship of some sort. It, I'll never be, belong to India. I can speak Hindi, but I cannot. I'll never belong there. But it doesn't mean, but there's a lot of people I, I associate with here that don't, don't need to feel like they belong or that historically they belong here, but they feel very connected to Canadian soil. And I feel very connected to India, but I don't romanticize that. Um, I, I want to be accepted. Um, before, before, before I learned Hindi, um, you know, the, the, the women, uh, in one particular village that I worked a lot in, in Kutch, they would always call me this sweet pet name and I always said what what is that name and they go it's it's just auntie it's sweet it's you know we can't call you your real name you know like what it isn't like in 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 India well as I learned Hindi I really I asked my tutor and I what is that name apparently it's auntie he said it's not auntie (laughs) it's like Mrs. Fussy Pushy So I went back, you know, went, oh, oh, I love that name. At first I was so indignant. Oh, I'll never be accepted. I'm just a ma'am who's fussy and pushy. And then and then when I and then I thought, no, that is who I am. And the fact that they <laughs> decided to pet name me that, I thought, okay, I'm I can live with that. And um and then and you know, we we just have we have too much fun together. But I'm not it's not lost to me. And I know people that I that I uh, that I, uh, you know, I've been called everything from a white colonial 
supreme whatever. Uh, but I don't believe that. I, I don't. I don't. I believe the world is big enough for all of us. I do think that um, I can't help my history. I know I. I can't, I'm British. I come from a British parents who never in their wildest imagination knew what was going on with the colonialists that built their society. And I can't, I can, I can, um, I can address it. I can understand it. I get my color. I get that I have privilege. It doesn't mean I, it doesn't paralyze me. Let's put it that way. There's a lot of criticism. Um, like there could be a lot of criticism, but uh, it just, um, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I'm going to I'm going to keep doing what I do cuz I love it so much. And I think what we're doing is good. I don't I don't underestimate I don't ever um I don't think we're always right, but I don't underestimate uh the difference that can be made by one small company. So now that things are sort of shut down around the world and and people are pretty much only coming to you through their computers at least for this moment. Yeah. Yeah. One of my colleagues had to had to limit herself to only one or two different <laughs> kinds of handmade needles, and she has a little box. <laughs> I know, and we're just like sending out all kinds of stories because we have all kinds of time. You know, I did have to lay off some staff, but our majority of our senior creative staff, we kept on, and I'm determined to do that. And um, I mean, the last the crash in in 2008 did affect us, and it was at that time when I decided that I had to not just be bricks and mortar for the sake of of so many and so much. I needed to get online, and so um, you know, our school, and so that that happened, and we're we're in a good position now because of that. But um, I don't, I, you know, oh my god, I mean, we have no idea what's going to happen with rents. We pay enormous rents, and we have no clarity from our landlord. We we have a good government, however, so in that way, all the individual people are looked after, and now they're starting to look after business, small business. It's um, a relief that uh, they're not just bailing out oil banks and lumber. It's it's great that small cafes and restaurants and books and mortar stores are looking like things will be available. Um, but, uh, but, you know, our, we, our biggest challenge has been the closure of our school. I, we had 500 students enrolled at that time. And so, uh, it's only bricks and mortar. It's an in-house school. I mean, we have, we have two parts of the school to dry, uh, for embroidery and pattern drafting and, uh, all of that costume making. And then we have the wet, which is all our dye classes, Everything was canceled from March to the end of our semester in June. So, yeah, so uh, that was one of those feelings again of, whoa, we've lost a lot uh, in having to give refunds for it to everybody. It's made me realize I want to get the school online. Yeah, so that's what we're working on. We'll, we'll have both, just like I believe in bricks and mortar uh, equally. I don't think everything can be online. You need to meet people. But um, our studios are beautiful studios, and they're both closed, so <laughs> so we can film or do something. So that's our idea right now. I think it'll take a year. It took us a year to get online properly. We have a new site. Actually, tomorrow you'll get another really beautiful email, which we have a new natural dye site. So we have our site, but that site uh, is layered and compli not complicated, but it's uh, diverse. So we've 
for the last year, been building this new site, which has got all kinds of information and recipes and research and everything about natural dyes. All that, and we'll slowly be uploading free tutorials and. We, we, as I say, we do a lot of research, so that research is available to public to walk in. We have never put it online, so we need to put that online. That this site allows us will allow us to do that. It's not part of the launch tomorrow, but it'll allow people to un, to uh, start seeing. Oh wow! I got to always check on their recipes. And I was thinking about that because I um, just for my personal interest was looking at sort of finished items. But when I look at, at your store or the, the website and I look at the drop down under natural dyes, it fills up the whole screen. Yeah. Yeah. There are we have so a lot many. of natural dyes. And, uh, you know, what, what people your side of the border often don't realize is that our Canadian dollar is a lot, a real good deal for you, for you all. So, uh, it's, you know, it's great because we trade directly from India or, or Chile or Peru or Mexico, wherever we're trading for natural raw material. Um, it comes into Canada and Canadian dollars. So that's, that's hopefully working to, um, in our favor. <clears throat> but yeah, we uh, are, now we're growing our, now we're getting farmers to grow um, our dyes. That's happened for the last five or six years. So now we're able to scale up slowly uh, to being able to have larger sizes for small uh, companies to be able to invest uh, their knowledge and creativity and commit to natural dyes. You can't buy it all in 500 gram containers. You know, you need two and a half kilos, five kilos, 10 kilos. So mm -hmm. that's our next step. And we have a, spa a place in India. So we have a studio in India. So sewing studio and a staff um, accommodation. And now we've just expanded that. So we'll have drying facilities for dyes and grinding and so forth. Yeah. So one step has taken you in all of these wonderful different directions. All these wonderful directions. And, you know, I, w I wouldn't be able to do it. I love thinking of new directions and, and vision envisioning. And if it wasn't for our fabulous staff and we have a really great team uh, and I hope we're all back together not in the not too distant future uh, it, you know we have so much talent within our group here and within our uh, within our staff in India so um, yeah we're all we're super excited well thank you so much for your time and for this sort of virtual journey oh, through yeah. your your business and your and your um, your partners in India and and um, thank you so much I look forward to seeing your new site Thank you. Yeah, tomorrow. <laughs> Check it out. Oh, you'll get it. <laughs> you'll get an email or do you? No doubt. <laughs> Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for Thank you. thinking of us, of contacting me and thinking of us. Yeah.